Hey, I'm Sam Amati. You're listening to Reclamation Worship. My name is Jason Allen, and I'm the host of Reclamation Worship, the podcast devoted to reclaiming a biblical view of worship for the church. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Reclamation Worship. I was excited to be able to talk with Sam Amati about this very important issue of theological triage. So you may not be familiar with this topic, and I'm excited for you to hear Sam talk about this. And uh, this is one of those issues that... Um, I believe so important. I think this may be the single most important issue uh, that the church is not talking about. And so uh, I think many wrongs could be righted if we were practicing theological triage. So uh, this is uh, a pretty heavy episode. You may have to listen to this one twice. A uh, lot of uh, a lot of great conversation here with Sam about, again, this very important topic of theological triage. So I would love to hear from you. I would love to get your feedback on this episode. You can reach me through reclamationworship.com. I'm also on Twitter at ReclamationHQ, Instagram at ReclamationWorship, and Facebook at ReclamationWorship. All right, well, let's head on over to the interview. Sam, I would love for you to tell uh, my listeners who you are and uh, a little bit about yourself. Sure. My name is Sam Amadi. I was born in Fairfax, Virginia. Uh, I, I don't remember uh, living in Fairfax because I think just prior to one, I moved to Layton, Utah. Um, so uh, I grew up in a, uh, a heavily Mormon area. I think, you know, Layton's about 70% Mormon. Uh, grew up, uh, but my parents were Christians. Uh, grew up in a uh, small Bible preaching uh, uh, evangelical church, non-denominational church in Layton. Um, I think I came to faith, uh, early in life through the witness of my parents. And, um, it was just about the time of, uh, high school, early college where, um, you know, all through junior high and high school, I thought I was going to be a professional musician, uh, you know, play the saxophone professionally. I was a jazz saxophone performance major. Um, and then, uh, uh, decided, like I said, early college that, uh, I didn't want to do that. Uh, I wanted to go into ministry. So, uh, uh, I graduated from college, went to Southern seminary, uh, did a MDiv, then did a, a PhD in biblical theology, writing on the Joseph story. Uh, and for the last, uh, year and a half or so, I have been working for, uh, an organization called Nine Marks, uh, which uh, creates resources uh, and 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 tries to build relationships uh, with pastors and churches to try to create healthy local churches. Excellent, excellent. So, are you still a musician? Do you still still play? You know, so when I uh, when I quit, um, I I sold uh, my saxophone and put all that money. Uh, you know, in the bank for, for savings for seminary. Um, I partly needed to do that as a chomping off my hand action, okay. uh, because, uh, I do think it was an idol in my life. Mm. Uh, but I kind of did it with the intention that maybe one day I would be able to buy another one. Okay. Uh, and then I got, and then I got married and had four kids and, uh, I quickly realized that will probably never happen. <laughs> <laughs> I uh so I played viola growing up and if I if somebody okay. put one in my hands right now I wouldn't know how to play it like I you know if you don't use it you lose it so do you think you could like if somebody gave you one so if any, I mean, any, I certainly, any, be, if any I of our listeners could could send one your way <laughs> I certainly don't think I'd be as uh uh kind of as as proficient as I was oh gosh when was the last time I played uh I guess I would have been 19. So that was 12 years ago or okay. 13 years ago. Okay. All right. Well, you're still yeah, a young man. Up. You've got time to pick it back up again. Uh, so growing up in a non-denominational church, how did you hear about Southern Seminary? I mean, 
how did you make that connection and, and uh, what drew you to that school? Yeah, so when I uh, first started really studying the Bible, I didn't, uh, I, I did feel uh, uh, kind of isolated in terms of resources that I could look to. And um, uh, so, but, but, I knew, but I knew enough church history that uh, I, I knew that the reformers and the Puritans were good guys. So I started, so in high school and early college, I started reading um, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, Calvin and Luther and, uh, you know, some Owen, uh, some of the other Puritans. And I, I just kind of, this was before the internet. This was before, um, uh, at least uh, there was, there was any sort of public awareness of, at least on my part of, of the Young Restless Reform Movement. And so I, um. I just assumed not a lot of people believe this type of stuff anymore. You know, I thought there were probably like five Calvinists left in the world and I was one of them. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so then my, my, my older brother, uh, moved, uh, for his final year in college, he moved to Biola, uh, to play basketball there. And he, he kind of already finished his college degree. It was a, it was a fifth year of college and he was just, kind of playing basketball ball at Biola and, and decided to take a bunch of Bible classes. And he ended up taking a lot of classes from students of D.A. Carson. Ah. And uh, so it was through his influence that I feel like I kind of discovered, um, uh, you know, this, this kind of wider network of biblical scholarship out there. And then uh, he said, uh, you've got to listen to this sermon. And uh, uh, he sent me, um, uh, by this time, there was the internet. Uh, he sent me a sermon, uh, and it was "How to Kill Sin Part Two mm. by John Piper. Mm. And I think I listened to it like eight times in a row. I'd never heard preaching like that in my life. Wow! So that's when I I started. You know, I, I started listening to a ton of Piper. I got a bunch of his books, um, and then I read his book, "The Justification of God." Mm-hmm which is a really technical academic, you know, it's a tough, tough piece to work through. And, you know, I probably only understood about half of it. Okay. Uh, But the most important thing about that book was I remember reading it and thinking, I didn't know it was possible to study the Bible at this level. Mm. And I got to do this. Mm. And I think if I'm remembering rightly, that book is dedicated to Tom Schreiner. Mm. So I must Google Tom Schreiner and then found Shriner's writings and started reading Shriner. And then I thought, well, I just got to go where this guy is. So that's, and, wow. and, and I also discovered Al Mohler at that time and was listening to the briefing. Uh, at that time it was the Albert Mohler program. And, uh, and so that's, uh, that's how I ended up at Southern. Wow. So um, when you were a student, were you at third Avenue then or Clifton? Where, where were you going? So I, um, uh, I worked for a season as a youth pastor. Okay. Uh, uh, the really faithful brother who's now pastoring in Virginia, uh, but he was pastoring uh, in Indiana at the time, and he was a uh, uh, he was involved in a church reform revitalization there. His name's Dave Schrock, okay. and um, so I went and worked with him, and I was a youth pastor there. Uh, but it was an hour away. It was it was you know difficult to kind of make wow. that drive two or three times a week, um, and so at the end of about a year and a half, uh, I got engaged to my wife and, um, and her father, her father was a pastor in Louisville. Okay. Also in a really difficult, you know, revitalization Mm. situation. So we joined there Mm -hmm. uh, for two or three years, um, just helping with the work there. And then he retired. And at that point, uh, we decided to head over to third Avenue. And then we've been there for quite, quite some time, except for one brief, uh, 10 month window. Uh, where we went to uh, Washington, D.C., and were members at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Okay, very good. So, really off topic, but uh, are you a Nats fan? I mean, they uh, they won the World Series last night. No, I've never been a huge baseball fan. The only baseball season I ever watched was, I, I guess it was 2005, uh, when the Red Sox won the World Series. Okay. And you had the you know, Miss... Or the famous Kurt Schilling bloody sock. And uh, <laughs> uh, that's the only baseball season I ever watched. Good deal. Good deal. So uh, 
I, I'm jumping around a little bit here, but but um, I'm just wondering. Uh, you you mentioned that you were uh, saved uh, through the faithful witness of your parents um, in Utah. So was that difficult um, growing up in a heavily Mormon populated area, or did did you even realize it? Um, where, did you have a lot of Mormon neighbors? Yeah. So, um, you know, I've, of the, all of my neighbors were Mormon. Um, I don't, so I went to a high school of, I mean, I don't even remember the specific number. I think it had to be at least like a thousand or 1500, maybe 2000 students. I feel like it was that big. And I think, I think I was the only evangelical in the high school. Wow. I, I, I knew a couple of atheists. I knew one liberal Methodist dude and then, um, but I think I was the only evangelical wow. at least that I was aware of. Sure. Um, uh, so yeah, that certainly posed some challenges. Uh, and I think, uh, especially even to this, my brother pastors in Utah currently, I think even to this day, I think one of the biggest pastoral challenges, uh, that, that you face is young people, um, uh, moving away from the faith and embracing Mormonism because of all the social benefits it's going to bring them. Mm. Uh, it's it gives them an instant kind of network of friendships um, and, and kind of uh, status in the society. And then I guess also for a lot of young people, you know, you're just, there's just not that many evangelicals out there. And, and so a lot of uh, uh, you know, there's uh, a lot of people, I've seen, I've seen many people leave the faith because, you know, they get a Mormon boyfriend or a Mormon girlfriend and then they end up joining the Mormon church. Mm. Um, so that can be a challenge. I, uh, I, the, the Lord just really helped me. Uh, I used that upbringing in my life to strengthen my faith uh, because it was just around the time of high school, uh, well, junior high and high school, uh, that, um, all of my Mormon friends and, you know, I had only Mormon friends, Mm -hmm. uh, started to, uh, pretty aggressively evangelize me. Mm. And so drove me to the Bible Mm. to try to figure out, you know, how do I answer their questions? Um, how do I know what I believe? You know, what is it that I believe? Mm. Uh, and, uh, it was actually a really rich, uh, spiritual time in my life because, It was it was kind of constantly driving me to the word to the, to theological study, and and to doing lots and lots of evangelism. So I remember I think it was my sophomore or junior year. I had a one particular friend who's a very dedicated Mormon, and basically every lunch hour, you know, we grabbed our lunch and we went and just kind of sat by his locker and just talked theology. Wow, you know, we were both kind of witnessing to each other. Um, so I I I'm incredibly thankful. Mm. For the fact that I grew up in Utah, there's a, I think there's a serious mindedness to Christianity in Utah mm. because uh, you don't gain any social capital by becoming a Christian. Wow. Uh, it immediately it puts you on the outside socially. Uh, you 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 know that you are, you know, especially as a young person, you know you're not going to be invited to certain things. You know you're not going to be. Um, uh, able to, to kind of, you know, participate in what, what everyone else is doing. Um, and so there's, there's, um, uh, uh, a, a very clear, uh, expectation that if you're going to follow Jesus, you know, you have to pick up your cross and follow him. You have to count the cost of following him. Right. And, uh, I think the Lord really used that to sanctify me and to help me. You know, I didn't know until I would, you know, moved to Kentucky when I was 21, I didn't know there was like this evangelical youth subculture thing with camps and everything else. Wow. Uh, I, I, yeah, there was, there's, there was just a real serious mindedness to Christianity in Utah. I think mm. that was really helpful to me. Wow. That's fascinating. So Sam, I wanted to talk with you today about something you've helped me in. Um, you have uh, written an article that we'll discuss toward the end um, of our time talking, but let me read this quote first, and uh, and then we'll we'll jump off here and 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 talk about um, this issue that um, that I brought you on for today. So, R.C. Sproul says, "Every doctrine of Christian theology touches in some way every other doctrine of the faith." So, 
there is this issue um, that we'll call theological triage, um, for lack of a better uh, way of putting it. You have written about that, and uh, you've written in a very helpful way to explain um, how this functions in the life of uh, Christians, in the life of the church. Uh, So I want to talk about this for my listeners who may not be familiar with this issue. I would love for you to explain what it is. Um, there's a, there's a famous quote out there that we can talk about in a, in a minute that, uh, sort of is the, the overarching banner for, uh, for this issue. But, uh, talk to us about theological triage. What is it? Maybe give us a a quick definition and, and, uh, and how we see that working in the life of the church. Yeah. So I think the term theological triage, uh, is a new term on an old idea. Uh, the idea basically being that uh, some doctrines are more important than others. Uh, and, uh, you know, some doctrines you have to affirm to be a Christian. And then there are other doctrines which are important, but less important than those, those kind of top-tier doctrines that you have to affirm to be a Christian. Uh, so, for instance, you, uh, and, and then on those lesser doctrines, we can have, you know, disagreements and still call each other Christians, maybe even fellowship within the, within the same church. Um, uh, but we're, we're just kind of recognizing an order of priority to certain doctrines. And so, for instance, um, uh, you, uh, you cannot be a Christian if you deny that Jesus is God. Mm. Uh, uh, however, uh, you, you know, you can have lots of different positions on the millennium and, you know, still be, still be a Christian. So we're recognizing Affirming Jesus is, uh, is God is really, really, really important. That's top tier. And then, you know, a position on the millennium is, is a less important theological affirmation. The term theological triage, uh, I think, was coined by Al Mohler uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an article he wrote. Uh, actually, I, I worked for Al for a little bit. Um, uh, but he wrote an article, uh, in 2006 or 2008. It was, it was a while ago. Uh, but he coined this term theological triage to help people think about first order, second order, and third order issues. Okay. And the way that he, he breaks this up is, uh, first order issues are issues that you have to affirm to be a Christian. Um, so for instance, uh, you have to affirm that Jesus is both God and man. You have to affirm the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, you have to affirm uh, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead. Um, I, I think even there, uh, you have to affirm justification by faith alone. Um, you know, that we receive the righteousness of Christ only by trusting in him. Mm. And we don't earn it by our own works or, or merit. Those are first order issues. If you deny any of those things, you're probably not a Christian. Mm. You probably don't understand the gospel as it's described in the Bible. Uh, And then there are second order issues. These are issues that we all have to affirm to fellowship with one another in the same church. So for instance, this would be uh, 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 our, our view of baptism. Um, uh, If, if you have one group of people that says only believers should be baptized and you have another group of people that says, well, we should baptize believers and their children. Those people can't worship in the same church, right? Because they're constantly going to be infringing on one another's conscience. Mm. Uh, uh, how, you, how you think about church polity is another second order issue. Mm-hmm. If, if one group of people thinks, well, only elders should make church decisions, uh, and they have an elder rule polity, and then another group thinks, well, no, it's, it's uh, a congregation that makes decisions led by the elders, but the congregation is actually the one kind of, you know, pushing the launch button on issues. Uh, those, you know, those are competing visions for church life. You can't have those, you can't have those groups in the same congregation because again, just confusion infringing on one another's conscience. So those are second order issues. Um, and then there's third order issues on which, you know, the Bible speaks about these issues, uh, but we can worship in the same local church uh, uh, in good conscience with one another. And, um, uh, and, and, you know, that would be issues, like I said, like the millennium, whether you're an amillennialist or a premillennialist, uh, or Sabbatarianism, right? Whether you believe that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath, 
uh, and that you should refrain from uh, all works except for those of, uh, you know, mercy, charity, and necessity? Or, 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 or do you think it's the Lord's day and the Lord has given you more freedom to do other things on Sunday? Um, that would be a third order issue where we don't necessarily have to divide into different churches uh, because we're not going to be infringing on one another's conscience. I do think that this is a, this idea of triage is a biblical idea uh, because of 1 Corinthians 15. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand uh, and by which you are being saved. Um, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then in verse three, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received. So these are the first importance things for Paul, right? That, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. So Paul clearly has a list there of first importance issues. Hmm. Uh, so I think, I think as we talk about triage, it's just helpful to remind ourselves that I think the apostles themselves <laughs> thought in this way. With the Bible and non-denominational church, um, has that impacted or affected the way that we understand second order issues? I think so. So I think there's a couple of things going on there. I think uh, a lot of Bible churches just have, you know, the the uh, the word ecclesiology uh, means doctrine of the church, uh, and uh, I think a lot of Bible churches are just ecclesiology light mm. or mere ecclesiology, and um, I I think that can be in part motivated by by either those churches uh, failing to recognize how much the New Testament actually addresses the doctrine of the church. And I think other times it, it, it might be motivated by kind of a well-intentioned application of, of, of Christian principles of charity uh, and, and affirming brothers and sisters who don't hold particular doctrines that we do kind of causing, causing some of these Bible churches to create a, you know, a, a, a church government system that tries to be super inclusive, mm-hmm. uh, but, but ends up, I think, being being a situation where uh, you know you're just you're just going to run run into problems. So I, I do think that the Bible church impulse in a lot of American evangelicalism uh, wants to downplay the significance of the doctrine of the church and these second order issues mm-hmm. because they're you know trying to. Uh, you know, be affirming of other Christians who don't hold their ecclesiology or, or, or whatever. I also just think it's, 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 it's a little bit in the water that we drink. Mm -hmm. It's the spirit of age that has a difficult time that, that makes it uh, uh, difficult for Christians to think about, wait, how can we, how can we say that we're brothers and sisters in the Lord and in these different denominations, right? We seem so divisive and so separate. Uh, What I want to, push back on is I actually think denominations are a great thing. Mm. And I actually think they are birthed out of the Christian worldview and not a contradiction of the Christian worldview. Okay. Because when we play into these different denominations, right? When my, when my Presbyterian brothers, my OPC and PCA brothers separate into other churches, I actually think that's a great thing because what that means is they can now worship God according to their own conscience. Mm. And as Christian, what does Paul teach us? That we should value uh, and respect the consciences of other believers. Mm. And you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to put a, I certainly don't want to be in a conscience in a situation where I have to go to a church and that church is asking me to do things that go against my conscience. And I don't want to put, you know, other brothers, maybe a Pado Baptist brother in a situation where he feels like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm stuck at this Baptist church and, you know, it's infringing on my conscience and it's asking me to worship God uh, by not baptizing my infant. And, you know, I think that goes against the Bible. I think that's against what God wants of me. This is not true worship of God. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it, it's a great thing that we value one another's consciences and split into these different denominations. And we can affirm and love each other and say, yes, those people over there are Christians, but I think they're reading the Bible wrongly. Um, but I also love them and don't want to, I don't want to infringe on their conscience. Uh, I think that's a great thing. And, you know, we're not in competition with one another. Right. So, um, 
I I want as I want really faithful uh, Bible believing, gospel preaching Presbyterian churches to prosper. Mm, that's good. Even though I'm and 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 I've I've seen this uh, in a very um, real and, and helpful way, uh, modeled by uh, someone who you know very well, Mark Dever, um, and his friends um, through the Together for the Gospel conference. And so, uh, if you're listening to this, um, that is open. Uh, registration is open for that right now. So I would encourage you to look into that, uh, t4g.org, I believe. I will put the link in the show notes. And you can go to a conference in April where this is lived out. And uh, you can uh, fellowship with uh, brothers and sisters who you might not fellowship with on Sunday morning. But um, it would be a, a great opportunity for you to see the gospel um, being um, affirmed and uh, treasured. Uh, together with others who we might be separated from on these second and third order issues. So Sam, you have helped me to think about this issue uh, in an article that you have written. It was published uh, by the gospel coalition. I will link to this article in the show notes of this episode, but uh, you, you write on the, um, the issue of creationism and and how this idea of theological triage can be applied to uh, to creationism. So, would you mind just giving us a, a, a brief summary of the article and what you were trying to do, what we, what you were setting out to do in writing this? Yeah. So, uh, I was meditating on uh, just the debate that is often swirling uh, in evangelical circles between. Uh, literal six-day young earth creationism uh, and then, you know, old earth creationism. And then there's lots of kind of variations and, and all sorts of things in, in between those positions and from those positions. You know, what I wanted to do was create some categories for uh, why we could, you know, affirm one another and love one another, even with our differing positions on creation but at the same time, what I wanted to do was put some stakes in the ground and say, hey, no matter, no matter how we flesh out the details of our doctrine of creation, we need to have some boundaries here that we all agree on, right? Some, some posts that we recognize we're not going to transgress beyond. Uh, so part of what I was doing was, was, I think, creating some theological categories for why we can affirm and love and fellowship with one another. Uh, even though we may have differences on this issue, but I also wanted to provide uh, a sense of 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 commonality and similarity uh, e- even between these people who may have differences on on the doctrine of creation. Uh, so what I did was I said, okay, no matter what we think about Genesis one and the length of days in Genesis one, whether we think it's some sort of day age thing going on or if it's a literal six day thing. Uh, or no matter what we think about the age of the earth, uh, I think there's seven things that every Christian has to affirm about creation. Okay. Uh, and those seven things were that God created the world out of nothing, uh, that God is distinct from his creation, that God created the world good, that God created the world for his glory, uh, that God specially created Adam and Eve as his image bearers, uh, that Adam and Eve are humanity's first parents, and that Adam and Eve are historical figures who really did disobey God in time and space history in the Garden of Eden. Mm. And so if, if we tamper with any of those seven fundamentals, then we are in danger of um, getting into that first order category and distorting things or, or um, uh, twisting them in such a way that we are at risk of doing some damage there. Yeah, I think so. I think you are uh, potentially, you know, running the risk of either losing the gospel or you've already lost it. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, particularly on those. So, for instance, I mean, if, if you don't believe that God created the world, you have a, a very, uh, you know, deficient uh, and erroneous worldview that that does not in any way resemble what's going on in the Bible. Mm. Um, you know, if, if you if you think that um, uh, 
uh, you know, matter or creation somehow preexisted God, right? Then, then um, uh, you know, you, you're probably guilty of idolatry because you're not worshiping the one true eternal God that's found in the pages of Scripture. Um, and then, especially when it comes to these last points, where I'm talking about Adam and Eve, them being humanity's first parents, Adam and Eve both being made in the image of God, they're historical figures. Well, that is enormously important because look at what Paul is doing in Romans five when he's setting up Adam and Christ as the two heads of humanity. Adam is the federal head of the human race. And through him, we all inherit a sinful nature, but his guilt is also imputed to all of humanity. Hmm. Uh, and, and well, how, you know, how is it that we're going to be rescued from, uh, from this sinful nature and from this guilt that's been imputed to us by Adam? Well, we need a, we need a new federal head. We need a second Adam who's come to restore hum- humanity and someone who can impute to us his righteousness. Uh, so, you, you know, without affirming the historicity of Adam, Paul's argument in Romans 5 just completely collapses. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, so if, if Adam's mythological, then, then what is it that Jesus is doing? You know, I don't know. Right. Uh, but he surely, can't be, he surely can't be a new Adam. He can't be the new federal head. Uh, of God's people, right? Uh, a, a savior. So I think, yeah, if you, if you haven't lost the gospel, you're certainly in risk of doing so if you're not affirming these seven things. One of the things you helped me with in this article was realizing that these, these three um, categories that we have, the, the primary, secondary, and tertiary, um, are not self-contained. Uh, they're not unto themselves issues that, uh, that they all are impacted by one another. And so, um, what, so of, uh, it sounds like just in that first, uh, description of first order issues that you mentioned earlier, uh, I can think of a couple that are at risk. Um, if we begin to tear down, uh, creationism, uh, and isolate it as a secondary or, or uh, tertiary issue. So, um, uh, the authority of scripture being one, um, and then substitutionary atonement of Christ. So, um, how is it that we, um, can think carefully about other issues, uh, issues other than creationism, uh, or creation? How is it that we can think carefully about these issues that we're quickly to say, oh, that's a secondary or a tertiary issue. How is it that we can put up guardrails for ourselves to think about the implications that these issues have uh, on first order issues? Uh, I mean, w- one place to start is just by reading your church's statement of faith um, and by reading other good statements of faith uh, that have been you know, given to us throughout uh, the history of the church. Uh, so for instance, uh, just look at uh, you know, something like uh, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And um, you know, let, let's just take something like uh, let's move from creation to last things. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things in eschatology, the doctrine of the last things. There's a lot of things in eschatology that are third order issues. Where 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 you put the whether you believe in a rapture or the timing of the rapture or or what you think about the great tribulation or or whether you're a premillennialist or an amillennialist. But there's some first order things in eschatology as well. The fact that Jesus Christ will return and that he will judge the living and the dead, Mm. Um, right? And that's explicitly articulated in the Nicene Creed. Or it's articulated in, in, you know, your church's statement of faith. So uh, I I think one helpful practice uh, would to just be to meditate on on some of these uh, uh, historic creeds and then your own local church's confession. And I think you can see there uh, some first order issues, right? These are all gospel issues. Um, uh, these are things that you have to affirm to be a Christian. And I, and I think you can, you can see there, okay, here's, here's a big idea about the return of Jesus. I have to affirm this, but now, okay, but there's all these kind of like extra bits of, of the Bible that we have to put together. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the basic principle is that uh, the, the, the closer a doctrine gets to our understanding of who God is and our understanding of what Jesus came to do, the, the closer it gets to the gospel, then the more of first importance it becomes. 
Um, sometimes it's difficult to kind of say, well, where is this, you know, on the spectrum? And that's where, you know, we look to, uh, that's, that's where we just have to, um, one, trust God and, um, ask for his help. Uh, and two, lean into the fellowship of our local churches and the godly pastors uh, and into church history and recognize that we're not the only ones that have the Holy Spirit. Um, God never intended us to uh, read the Bible in isolation and to figure all this stuff out ourselves. Mm. Uh, he pours his spirit out on his people. Uh, and so, you know, we, we, we develop these convictions in community with other people and in conversation with 2,000 years of, of people who lived before us. Mm. Uh, who had the Holy Spirit and were reading the same Bible and following the same Lord. Um, so I think as we as we read the Bible in community, uh, and as we as we pay attention to things like our statement of faith and our you know and and then the history of the church, I think we'll be able to see okay, here's here's a doctrine. Now here's the here's the first order things in this doctrine, and then here's the second and third order things in this doctrine. That's good. That's very helpful. So there's a, a phrase that is attributed to um, Rupertus Meldinius um, in the essentials, unity, the non-essentials, liberty, and all things charity. I hear people use this phrase often. Is, is this a helpful statement? Because I think oftentimes people don't take the time to flesh out what the essentials are and what the non-essentials are. So do you find it to be a helpful statement or uh, would you rather see it go away? In some context, I might find it helpful. I think in, in a lot of contexts, my experience with that uh, quote has been much like yours, where I find that people use it uh, to, uh, to end conversation, to end debate, and to essentially say, well, what does it matter, you know? And I, I think uh, that, you know, when we're talking about theological triage, we have to be very careful to say, um, uh, you know, this isn't saying that, hey, these first order things are really important and these second and third order things are not important. What we're saying is that they're all important, mm-hmm. but some are more important than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so to say, well, look, in the essentials, unity, and everything else, liberty, um, I, I just think it's a bit reductionistic because, uh, you know, obviously uh, in those, in those, n- non-essential things. And by non-essential, I'm just assuming that means they're not essential to being a Christian. Right. So maybe an issue like baptism, I don't think we should just kind of throw up our hands and say, none of it really matters. Right. Let's all just kind of do our own thing. You know, we all, we all have Liberty in the Lord. Uh, I think what we want to say is, you know, if I'm talking to a Pato Baptist brother, I'm going to say, you're wrong. <laughs> right. The Bible <laughs> says that you are reading the Bible. And, uh, you know, I want that person to be a Baptist, even while I love them and affirm that they're a Christian, and I'm glad that they're gathering in their own Presbyterian churches to worship God according to their own conscience, and I hope that that church flourishes. So I, I think what that, what that quote does is it, is it basically kind of creates two categories. I've, I've heard it phrased this way sometimes. You have, you have open-handed is- issues and close-handed issues, mm. right? Close-handed issues are things that we hold on tightly and we don't let go. And then the open-handed issues we just kind of don't care about. Um, again, I just think that's reductionistic. I think as Christians and particularly pastors, uh, two speeds are not enough. Even three speeds, as much as that theological triage thing is helpful, is not enough. You actually need like 80 speeds <laughs> to figure out, um, you know, kind of an order of priority as to how, how much fight you need to put up. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in defending a particular issue. So, yeah, I, f- I find that quote sometimes to be a bit reductionistic because it, it can be heard as or even be used as you have things that matter and things that don't. Right. right. And I, I don't think that's what theological triage is trying to get at. That's helpful. Thank you. Uh, so you're a wise man. You're not on Twitter. Um, but if you were unwise like I am and you were on Twitter, you would uh, – uh, see this war uh, raging over the issue of complementarianism. Uh, and it, it seems like um, if those who are participating in this fight are familiar with this issue that we're talking about today, it seems like they're just completely ignoring it. Um, could you speak to that issue and and how we could be more um, 
gospel affirming, but also more charitable in our discussions of this issue? Any, any thoughts on that? Uh, well, if, I, I think first, let's just, I, even since this conversation is about theological triage, uh, if we kind of connect these two ideas, uh, where, where, is complement, where is complementarianism on the theological triage scale? Well, I, I, you know, I think we're going to put it in a second order issue. Um, this is an issue that we have to all agree on uh, in order to fellowship in the same church, right? If, if one church says women can be pastors and another church says women cannot be pastors, obviously you can't be in the same church because that's going <clears> to <throat> that's going to create fighting <clears throat> and division within the church. Mm. You're not affirming how the church how how the Bible order how the Bible orders the church. Um, and I I I trust and know you know many godly Bible believing uh, uh, evangelical egalitarians. Um, and I think, uh, especially probably in the seventies and eighties, a lot of, uh, a lot of the, uh, a lot of evangelical seminaries were populated with, with more, um, egalitarian. So, you know, for instance, uh, uh, I, I think Roger Nicole, uh, who's a great reformed theologian, uh, was an egalitarian. Um, and, and so, you know, this is, this is not something you have to affirm to be a Christian. Um, uh, so that's, that's where I would put on theological triage. At the same time, um, I, do think, I do think this is one of those second order issues that is tremendously important, right? So if I'm, if I'm kind of expanding my categories of first, second, and third into, you know, maybe, maybe we have five or six levels right. of, of, of importance. Um, yeah, I, I do think this is tremendously important because of the fact that it's, it's rooted in creation mm-hmm. um, uh, because of the way that Paul connects complementarity uh, between a husband and wife to the gospel. Um, I, I, be, because of, and you know, frankly, I just, I think that complementarianism is so clear in the mm-hmm. Bible mm-hmm. that some of the, some of the, hermeneutical moves you have to make in order to get to egalitarianism, you know, I think they're dangerous. I, I think they, I think they create a, a pattern of interpretation that, uh, you know, doesn't lead to a good place. Mm-hmm. I don't want to affirm any sort of slippery slope argument, but I just want to make a historical observation. Mm-hmm. Many denominations uh, that uh, transition on this issue from uh, you know, kind of a, a traditional understanding of manhood and womanhood to an egalitarian position. Many of the no- denominations that did that 50 or 60 or 30 or 20 years ago uh, have now moved far beyond that into more LGBT affirming. Mm. And I think that's because when you, when you use a hermeneutic that leads to egalitarianism, I think some of those other issues are really hard to avoid. Mm. Uh, I, I think it does lead you down that path. I'm not, I'm not saying, in, you know, every egalitarian is, is doomed to that or is, you know, secretly plotting that. Right. I'm not saying that. I'm trying to make a historical observation that many, you know, many of the mainline Protestant denominations did that very thing. So Sam, one of the issues that I, I mentioned, there's a, a war uh, being waged on Twitter right now. One of the issues with complementarianism or pertaining to complementarianism that uh, is really at, at the center of this uh, debate is whether women should be preaching uh, or not. So what help us think about that issue uh, in terms of theological triage? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, the, so when we talk about complementarianism, you know, how do we define the boundaries of it? Um, and I think that, you know, we can, we can look at the, uh, uh, standard bearer, uh, uh, kind of statements on complementarianism and say, those are the boundaries, right? So you've got the Danvers statement, uh, and then you also have, have complementarianism defined for, at least for Southern Baptists in the Baptist faith and message 2000. Now, neither of those statements, um, explicitly says that, uh, women cannot preach. However, you know, and, and, you know, and I'm not saying my, my complementarian brothers who say things like women can, can, can preach under the authority of the elders. I'm not, I'm not accusing them of, of being egalitarians. They're, they're not. Um, however, I, I do think they significantly misunderstand uh, what complementarianism is. And um, even, even how documents like the Danvers Statement came to be written and the types of controversies that, 
that that document was addressing. Uh, you know, but more to the point, more importantly, um, uh, I just think the Bible is exceedingly clear uh, that women cannot preach or teach in the corporate assembly because of First Timothy two twelve. You know that a that a woman is not to uh, teach or exercise authority over a man. And some people will make the argument, well, that's about that's about office, not function. Uh, you know, so women can't be pastors or elders, but they can preach or teach under the authority of the elders. But I just want to note about that passage. That passage is about function, not office. You know, it doesn't say women cannot be pastors or elders. Uh, it says, uh, you know, women cannot teach or exercise authority over a man. So it's that, you know, Paul's phrasing it that way because what he's doing is he's, he's not only restricted the office of, of pastor and elder to men, uh, he's in that passage restricting the functions of pastoring and eldering, specifically preaching. Uh, uh, to men as well. So I, I think it's, I think while, while those, while those brothers who, who want to affirm women preaching, uh, again, I'm, I'm not saying they're egalitarian, but what I am saying is I think it's a, I, I think it's a, it's a failure to understand kind of the, the, the whole package of complementarianism and also more specifically first Timothy two twelve. I wish that we could affirm things like that, that you just mentioned without the assumption being made that, um, we are saying that women should hold no place of ministry in the church. It seems like those two things are not um, able to uh, exist at the same time, that whenever we make a statement that is affirming a second order or first order issue, the assumption is being made that we're saying something that we're not. And so I, I wish that our conversations and our debates could be more charitable um, in letting those issues stand. Uh, and and then us being able to say, uh, rather than being accused, what our position is on women serving in the church. Yeah, I mean, I want every local church to have both, uh, you know, men and women that are uh, articulate, theologically trained, active in ministry. Um, uh, you know, these these two things are not at, at contradiction with one another. Um, uh, and, and certainly as, as, you know, a congregationalist, and I believe in the priesthood of all believers, you know, you're not, you're not a, you're not a, I don't think a healthy church unless you have really meaningful Titus two ministry going on, mm-hmm. right? If I can just use that kind of as a banner of, of, of women teaching women and discipling women, there are things that only women uh, can do in my congregation in terms of one-on-one relationships and discipling other women and, and you know, teaching other women so forth uh, that uh, that that men can't do in the way that they can. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, complementarianism is not trying to affirm women have, have, have no, no significant role in the church. Uh, uh, I, th- I think complementarianism by virtue of the fact that we're saying men and women are different and these differences matter uh, is actually uh, saying, well, yes, well, the office of pastor and the function of preaching is restricted to, to men. Boy, we can't, we can't carry out this commission together unless we have really faithful, healthy, godly men and women who are all ministering to one another in the life of the congregation. Mm. That's good. That's very helpful. So in closing, what, uh, what thoughts do you have for someone listening to this and how, and, and you've talked about this a little bit already in looking at the um, church's doctrinal statement and, and looking at what some of the church fathers have said. So um, any, any parting thoughts or words of wisdom for listeners who are wanting to learn more about this or uh, would like to think more seriously about how they are uh, treating this issue, even in their own um, theological pursuits and how they're studying and thinking about the Bible. Um, any, any thoughts on how people can sharpen their theological triage skills, if you will? Uh, I think a place to start would be to read two things. Uh, number one, uh, you should read the original Albert Muller article that we've been discussing. It's called A Call for Theological Triage and Christian Maturity. And then I think the second thing that you should do uh, is read a book by Andy Nacelli uh, on the conscience. It's, it's an enormously helpful book. And he also has a children's book on the conscience, um, which, you know, you probably, I mean, get both of them. 
and uh, read the children's book first and then read the, uh, the, the big book second. I, I think uh, conscience is really crucial in understanding uh, uh, how, to, how to piece all of these things together um, and um, uh, you know, how to live in a, in a loving and understanding way uh, with, with weaker brothers and stronger brothers, right? To use Paul's category, weaker consciences and stronger consciences. Hmm. And then I think the second thing is, is, you know, to develop your doctrine of the church. Um, I think one of the reasons we struggle with theological triage so much is because we don't have a firm grasp on what the church is hmm. and how the church, uh, how the new Testament orders a church. And, uh, I think what that does is it creates all sorts of wrong expectations for what is required of us uh, for faithful fellowship and membership in a local church. And so I think if we had a clearer understanding of the doctrine of the church, we would know better how to um, <clears throat> how to how to draw lines yeah. and live within them, uh, and then how to have convictions, and then have other people with different convictions. Uh, you know, worship and fellowship with us. Uh, so I, I, th- I think I think the doctrine of the local church kind of puts all of put, it puts feet on this theological triage. It puts all of this into into reality because what it does is it takes we as Christians, right, first order, and puts us in a community of people with boundaries, mm. second order. Mm-hmm. Those people within those boundaries often have different convictions, third order, right. So it just it just kind of puts puts you know puts meat on everything that we're talking about here. That's great. That's very helpful. Sam, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you helping me think more deeply about this. And uh, I pray that this conversation will be beneficial to my listeners. So thank you so much, brother. Yeah, thanks, brother. Glad to do it. Well, again, that was Sam Amadi. I'm very thankful for this brother and uh, his attention to issues like theological triage. All of the resources that were mentioned in this episode will be available in the show notes at reclamationworship.com. So go to reclamationworship.com, click on podcast, click on this episode, and in the body there of uh, this episode, you will find all of the resources that, that were mentioned. Please go to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and review Reclamation Worship. Again, we are on Instagram at Reclamation Worship. We're on Facebook at Reclamation Worship and Twitter at Reclamation HQ. Until next time, soli Deo Gloria.